Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 321, Evaluating Minton's Three Arguments That Jesus Is Yahweh. Recently, I ran across a blog post from 2018 done by a young apologist named Evan Minton. It was posted at his blog at cerebralfaith.net, and it was also posted at crossexamined.org. The post is called Three Syllogistic Arguments for Jesus' Deity. I thought these arguments are very interesting and very well worth interacting with. There are three deductive arguments. The goal is what logicians call validity and soundness. To say that an argument is valid just means that if all the premises are true, then the conclusion would also have to be true. Soundness means validity plus each of the premises is in fact true, which of course guarantees that the conclusion is true. And ideally, you want a deductive argument to start with known or at least reasonably believed premises so that the argument shows how a certain conclusion is logically implied by them and so is also known or reasonably believed. The reason why these types of arguments are so valuable is that they focus our minds. If you have what is really a valid deductive argument, then there are only so many ways you can respond. First of all, you can just agree that it's a sound argument, that the premises are true, and so the conclusion also is true. You can give way. But if you don't want to do that, you have to either doubt or deny at least one of the premises. If you accepted this, this, and this, you'd have to accept this, the conclusion. Okay, well, if you don't want to accept that conclusion, which premise is it that's false? Or which premise is it that's doubtful, if you just want to doubt the conclusion? So our young apologist will be trying to show that each premise in his argument is undeniable, at least once you grant the authority of Christian scripture. The first two arguments were a little bit messy in the exact way they were formulated, so I cleaned them up a little bit and simplified them a little bit. Also, in his blog post, he varies back and forth between saying that Jesus is God, that he is Yahweh, and that he is divine, as if those are all obviously equivalent. So I made slight changes to the first two arguments so as to make them all the same in this regard. I think what he means to say is that Jesus is Yahweh. And actually, to be valid, the conclusion has to be an identity statement, an assertion of numerical sameness. So I haven't strawmanned the arguments, right? Strawmanning is when you just knock down a crummy caricature of your opponent's argument. It's not really what they're saying. It's like an easier to refute misunderstanding of what they're saying. That's called arguing against a straw man or strawmanning somebody's position. The opposite of that, people sometimes say, is steel manning. Let's look at the opponent's arguments and put them into the best possible forms. The clearest, most defensible forms, or maybe forms which really best express what the author is really getting at. So that's what I've tried to do with these arguments. And as I go through these and evaluate them, you'll probably want to look at the arguments. So they're on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. You should be able to view them in your podcast app. Now, the interesting thing about validity is that it's purely structural. And so you can take an argument and feed it into a computer program, and the computer program, not being conscious, doesn't know whether the premises are true or false, but it can evaluate an argument for validity just based on the structural features of the premises. 
when I used to be a professor, I taught logic classes a couple of times where students would construct logical proofs, logical arguments, and then there was a computer program that would tell them whether or not the argument was valid, whether or not it was a legitimate proof. Well, I don't have that program anymore, but I do have an old friend that we haven't heard for many years on the Trinity's podcast, so let me, uh, let me bring him out here. Maybe if you've been listening to the podcast a long time, you'll remember our friend LogicBot2000. Let me start him up. All right. Looks like he still works. You know, one of these days I'm going to have to get a newer model of the Logic Bot. I'm pretty sure this one's going to blow a fuse one of these days. I am the Logic Bot 2000. Please state your argument. Okay, hold on, Logic Bot. So Mr. Mitten starts his blog post by writing this. The Bible teaches in a variety of ways that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. In some places, the Bible couldn't possibly be more explicit and it boggles the mind how anyone who takes Scripture as the inspired Word of God could avoid any conclusion other than that Jesus is divine. Couldn't possibly be more explicit. Okay, people who know the Bible will know that it doesn't contain the phrase God incarnate or the phrase that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. But I think what he's referring to here are passages in which, at least according to some texts and according to some translators, Jesus is referred to as God. In other words, the word God is used, and in the context, that word is referring to Jesus. Now, I think it's worth bringing in the LogicBot 2000 here, because he's assuming something here that can be represented as a deductive argument. We can call this the, quote, God argument. Let me push the argument button again on him. I am the LogicBot 2000. Please state your argument. Okay, LogicBot, the premise is that Jesus can be referred to as, quote, God. To the conclusion, therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Your argument is invalid. Oh, okay, invalid. Interesting. The form of that argument is just P, therefore Q. In general, it seems like it'll be possible for P to be true and Q to be false. So if all the premises can be true and yet the conclusion can still be false, then it's invalid and not valid. When you have an invalid argument, it just gives you no reason whatever to agree with the conclusion. Now there's a way we could supplement this little argument. We could add a premise. Let's see if that helps any. Let's call this the improved, quote, God argument. Please state your argument. Premise one is the same. Jesus can be referred to as, quote, God. Second premise any being which can be referred to as, quote, God, is Yahweh. Conclusion, Jesus is Yahweh. Congratulations, your argument is valid. Okay, so now it's valid. That's an improvement right there. So now we have an argument such that if the premises are true, then the conclusion has to be true. But we just paid a price for this validity, which is premise two is obviously false according to the Bible. In the Bible, various beings are referred to as God or gods, and they are not Yahweh. They are various humans, angelic beings. Even in one passage, arguably, the devil himself is called the God of this world. So is it explicit that Jesus Christ is God incarnate? No. Or is it explicit in the Bible that Jesus is Yahweh himself? No, those words don't occur in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. But I think what he's getting at there is that it can be argued 
in a handful of passages that Jesus is referred to as, quote, God. For more on this, see Trinity's podcast 224, Biblical Words for God and for His Son, Part 1, God and, quote, God in the Bible. But Jesus being called God is neither an explicit nor even a clear implicit claim to Jesus being God, that is to say, Jesus being Yahweh himself, the one true God. So in his blog post, he says there are explicit claims that Jesus is God. Mm, Not really. And then there are implicit claims that Jesus is God. And again, I don't think he means is God to be shorthand for having a divine nature. I think he means that Jesus is Yahweh himself. And so he says that in some of his arguments, and I've standardized his arguments to say that. Okay, so these arguments are interesting. He tries to back up each of the premises with scripture, and they're redundant in the sense that if only one of these arguments is sound, then he has proven that Jesus is Yahweh. He doesn't need all three of them to be sound. If just one of them is sound, that would prove his conclusion that Jesus is Yahweh. Now, one other issue I'm going to mention just to set it aside is, I don't think a Trinitarian should want to go around saying that Jesus is Yahweh or that Jesus is God when those are meant as numerical identity statements. Statements similar to Mark Twain is Samuel Clemens, right? The one just is the other. They're one and the same. I don't think that's what a Trinitarian should mean. And some Trinitarians, but not others, agree with me about this. So for more on that, see Trinity's podcast 124, A Challenge to Jesus as God Apologists. Okay, but I'm going to set aside that I think, in a sense, this is the wrong conclusion. This is the conclusion that Mr. Minton wants, that Jesus is Yahweh. Let's see if these are sound arguments for that conclusion. The first argument of his I'm going to call the Savior argument. And now I'll give you my slightly cleaned up version of it. Let me uh, turn on the logic bot here. Premise 1. Yahweh is the only Savior of mankind. Premise 2. Jesus is the Savior of mankind. The conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Congratulations, your argument is valid. Alright, thanks, LogicBot. No problem. So it is valid. If you accept those two premises, then to be consistent, you would also have to accept the conclusion. For if both premises were to be true, then the conclusion would have to be true as well. And any argument with that structure is going to be valid. We could put this in terms of modern predicate logic with identity, but I don't think that's a necessary exercise because I think you can tell that if the premises are both true, then the conclusion would have to be true. One way just to paraphrase is that anyone who's the savior of mankind just is Yahweh himself But Jesus is the Savior of mankind, and so therefore Jesus must be one and the same with Yahweh. So let's look at how Minton defends his premises. He writes, The first premise states that Yahweh is the only Savior of mankind. This premise is backed up by Isaiah 43.11, which says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Minton comments, If Yahweh didn't act to initiate our salvation, our souls would be doomed to hell. No one can save us but God. He continues, what about the second premise? It is indisputable that Jesus is called our Savior. By the way, did you see the little switcheroo there? We went from being the only Savior to being called, quote, Savior. We'll come back to this. 
Okay, then he cites Titus 2.13, 1 John 4.14, Acts 13.23. I'm going to skip over some details in the blog post because no one who believes in the message of the New Testament is going to deny that it teaches that Jesus is our Savior. Okay, what shall we say to this argument? We noticed in his discussion that Mr. Minton switched between being a Savior, like being the ultimate source of salvation, and just having the word Savior applied to one. Those are different interpretations of the term Savior in this argument. We're going to have to disambiguate and say which we mean. In fact, I think there are really three ideas of Saviorhood here. One is just being appropriately described or addressed as Savior. It's being a, quote, Savior, basically. One's being the ultimate source of human salvation, being the initiator of the process of salvation. And then one is being the, we could say, the direct agent of our salvation, the one who redeems us through his sacrificial death, and the one who mediates between God and us now. And if we just mix and match these interpretations of the term Savior, it looks like we're going to have an invalid argument. Premise 1 says, only Yahweh is Savior. And premise 2 says, hey, but Jesus is Savior. Okay, for two to be relevant to one, we need to be talking about Savior in the same sense. And we don't need to break out the logic bot here, because giving different interpretations to the term Savior isn't going to give us different forms for the argument. We know that any argument with this form is logically valid. So let's go through the different interpretations. How about being Savior as being the ultimate source of human salvation? So then premise one, Yahweh is the only ultimate source of human salvation. Premise two, Jesus is the ultimate source of human salvation. Three, therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Well, the conclusion follows, and premise one, according to the Bible, is true. But premise two is false. Jesus isn't the initiator. He's the direct agent. He's the one sent to do it. He's the one carrying out the plan formulated by another. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Okay, so if we interpret being a Savior as being the ultimate source of salvation, premise one is true and premise two is false, and so even though the argument's valid, we don't have a sound argument, and we haven't proven that Jesus is Yahweh. Okay, what about the other interpretation? Just being the sent direct agent of our salvation. So Yahweh is the only direct agent of our salvation. Jesus is the direct agent of our salvation. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Again, valid argument, but it looks like it's going to be unsound. Premise two will be true because Jesus is that sent direct agent, the one who dies, the one who rules over the church now, the one who mediates between God and humankind. But Yahweh is the one who sent him. Yahweh is not the one who does those things I just mentioned. The good news is not that God died on a cross for us, but rather that the Son of God died on the cross for us. Romans 5, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Skipping down to verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, 
Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, not through his own death, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And of course, it's not God himself who is the mediator between God and humans. To talk about God himself as a mediator would just be to say that he interacts with us directly and there is no mediator. The New Testament doctrine is clearly expressed in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. The ransom, the sacrifice, the mediator, that's not God himself. That's not Yahweh. That's God's human son. The one who is capable of dying, and the one who is a third party, capable of being a mediator. So on this interpretation, premise one is false and premise two is true. Again, we don't have a sound argument. We have an unsound argument. Again, it's still valid, but that's not good enough. Okay, what about the interpretation that Mr. Minton suggested, where being a savior just means that you can be appropriately described or addressed as savior? Let's paraphrase that by saying uh, that the one in question is a, quote, savior. In other words, they could truly be referred to that way. Then we would have the, quote, savior argument. So Yahweh is the only, quote, savior of mankind. To Jesus is the, quote, savior of mankind. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Okay, premise two is going to be true. Jesus is truly and appropriately referred to as savior. But what about premise one? Yahweh is the only one referred to appropriately and truly as Savior. Nope, because the Son of Yahweh, the Son of God, can also be referred to that way. So premise one is false on this interpretation, even though premise two is true. So again, we don't have a sound argument. Now again, you might wonder, well, can't we just mix and match the senses to get all true premises? We can, but then you get this. And we will turn on the logic bot for this one, because this argument has a different form than the ones we've just been discussing. I am the logic bot 2000. Please state your argument. Premise one, Yahweh is the only ultimate source of human salvation. Premise two, Jesus is the direct agent involved in human salvation. Conclusion, therefore Jesus is Yahweh. Your argument is invalid. Yes, that's right, logic bot. If you're having trouble seeing how the premises could be true and the conclusion could be false, just realize that the premises are completely compatible with any Unitarian Christian theology. It's true, according to Unitarian Christians, that Yahweh is the ultimate source of human salvation. It's also true that Jesus is the agent directly involved in human salvation, the one who sacrifices and mediates and so on. And those can be true, even though it's false, that Jesus is Yahweh. 
In our view, Jesus is someone other than Yahweh. He's the human son of God, not God himself. And remember, the logical point here that this argument is invalid is not disputable. It's purely a matter of the structure of the claims involved. Okay, so our verdict on this Savior argument, it's either unsound, because if you use the same meaning of Savior, whatever that meaning is, you get a false premise. Or, if you try to mix and match the senses of Savior to get all true premises, it becomes invalid. The only way to get around this would be Mr. Minton would have to supply a different meaning of Savior on which both of the premises are true, according to the Bible, and which results in a valid argument. When the Trinity's podcast returns, an argument having to do with creation. His second argument I'll call the creator argument. And my, again, slightly simplified, cleaned up version goes like this. Hang on a second, let me turn the logic bot back on. Please state your argument. Premise 1. Only Yahweh created the universe. Premise 2. Jesus created the universe. 3. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Logic bot. Congratulations, your argument is valid. Okay, good. So the form of reasoning here is correct. And again, it's basically saying anyone who created just is Yahweh himself, but hey, Jesus created, so therefore Jesus is Yahweh himself. That's another way to paraphrase this argument. Now, the problems with this argument are exactly parallel to the problems with the first argument we discussed, and the different meanings of the term creator start to jump out at you just when you look at his proof texts for the premises here. So in favor of premise one, only Yahweh created the universe. He writes, in Isaiah 44, 24, God says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. In this verse, God says that he spread out the earth by himself. Other translations render it, I alone spread out the earth. In Job 9.8, Job says of God, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Right. So if he alone did it, anyone who created just as Yahweh himself, there couldn't be anybody else. And of course, careful New Testament readers realize that the one who's talking here is the one called the Father in the New Testament. But about premise two, that Jesus created the universe. He cites John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. He's assuming that the Word is the same person as Jesus. We'll let that go for this podcast. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And he comments, John asserts in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the creator of everything that exists. Everything. Uh, well, 
But notice we've switched from the idea of being the ultimate source of creation to being the one through whom somebody else made all things. So there's being the ultimate source of creation, and then there's this idea of God creating through you, and so you're a creator in that sense. That same distinction is brought out in the way he reads Colossians 1, where Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, etc. Now, just as an aside, I don't think that the Bible anywhere teaches that God created through the pre-human Jesus. About these alleged Christ-creator texts, I think there's widespread misunderstanding of them based on Trinitarian traditions. In my view, these alleged Christ-created-the-world texts are either about the new creation or they're about the old creation, but they're not really about Jesus. For more on that, check out Trinity's podcasts 258 and 259 called Who is the One Creator? But for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to completely lay aside that interpretive dispute. For the sake of argument, I'm just going to grant Mr. Minton's interpretations of those alleged Christ-creator texts. But the way he's reading them, Jesus is involved in creation in the sense that God creates through him, but then God would be involved in creation in a deeper sense than that. He would be the ultimate source of the creation, not the second farthest back source of the creation. So again, there are two interpretations of the term created in this argument. One interpretation is that this means being the ultimate source of the cosmos. Another interpretation is to be creator is to be that through which creation was accomplished by another. In other words, it's like being a tool or an instrument of creation, one could say. Or maybe to be creator is just to be involved in some way in the production of the cosmos. Whether you're the ultimate source or an agent, let's run through these different interpretations of this valid argument, see if any of them are sound. Let's start with the ultimate source interpretation. Premise one, only Yahweh is the ultimate source of the universe. That, according to the Bible, will be true. Premise two, Jesus is the ultimate source of the cosmos. Now, the way Mr. Minton's reading the New Testament, that's false. He's not the ultimate source. The ultimate source is the one who's acting through him to do this. So if by created you mean being the ultimate source, premise one is true, but two is false. Okay, what about that other interpretation that we saw in his reading of those alleged Christ-creator passages where creator means being the instrument used by the ultimate source? So being that through which the creation was done. What about that interpretation? Premise one, only Yahweh is the one through whom another created. Whoops, that's going to be false, even though on his interpretation of those passages, premise two will be true. In other words, it will be true that Jesus is the one through whom another, namely God, created. That's what those texts say, if he's right, that they have to do both with the Genesis creation and with the pre-human Jesus. Okay, so you're not going to get a sound argument with that interpretation. What about meaning creation just in the sense of being involved in the production of the cosmos somehow? You're a source of the cosmos, whether you're an ultimate source of it or not. If that's what it is to be a creator, premise one, only Yahweh created the universe, that will be false. 
because there's also this other one who created the universe, this other one who's not the ultimate source, but who's the one through whom the ultimate source created. Okay, so on those three interpretations, you don't get both of the premises being true, and so you just can't get a sound argument. Again, you might think, why can't I just mix and match the interpretations of the term created here so as to get all true premises? Won't that fix the problem? Well, let's see if that will fix the problem. Let me turn the logic bot on again. Please state your argument. Premise one, only Yahweh is the ultimate source of the universe. That's true. Premise two, Jesus is the second farthest back source of the universe, or you could say that through which the ultimate source created the universe. That will be true if Trinitarians are right about those alleged Christ creator texts. Conclusion, therefore Jesus is Yahweh. Your argument is invalid. Yes, don't try to argue with the logic bot. Logic bot doesn't look at the meaning of the terms. He just looks at the structure of the sentences. And just by the structure of the sentences, it's possible for one and two to be true, but three is false. If you're having trouble seeing how that could be so, imagine that you're a subordinationist Unitarian like Tertullian or Origen or Justin Martyr. And so you think God, that is to say the Father, Yahweh, is the ultimate source of the universe. You think premise one is true. And you think that premise two is true, that the Logos, or the pre-human Jesus, is the second farthest back source of the universe. And yet you don't think that Jesus is Yahweh. You think he's this lesser divine being that was emanated out of Yahweh in eternity or before the creation. This shows that it's possible for the premises to be true and the conclusion to be false, which means it's an invalid argument, which means we have not been given any reason whatsoever to agree that Jesus is Yahweh. Verdict is like the Savior argument. There are three interpretations of the main term, created. However you use those, you either get an argument that's valid but unsound because it has a false premise, or you get an invalid argument, like we just heard. The only way we could salvage a sound argument somehow here would be if Mr. Minton can specify a meaning of the term creator on which both premises are true according to Scripture. If you want to explore this issue about creation more, there's a lot more about this in my debate book with Chris Date, entitled, Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? You can find that on Amazon. When the Trinity's podcast returns, an argument based on worship. The third and final argument has to do with worship, and I didn't make a single change in this. Mr. Minton set it up very nicely. Let's run it through the logic bot to see if it's valid. Please state your argument. Premise one. Anyone who accepts worship other than Yahweh is a blasphemer. Premise two. Jesus accepted worship. 
premise three, which is really a preliminary conclusion from one and two, therefore Jesus was either a blasphemer or he was Yahweh. Premise four, Jesus was not a blasphemer. Five, the conclusion, therefore Jesus is Yahweh. Argument processing in three, two, one. Congratulations, your argument is valid. Huh. Never heard that little countdown before. Must have been that extra long argument. I guess back in 1957, no one had invented a progress bar? Anyway, the argument is valid. So far, so good. There's no mistake in the reasoning. But now we have to ask, is each of the premises true according to Scripture? I'm not going to go through everything he says in backing up his premises. Basically, he says that God deserves worship and only God deserves worship because only God is perfect, only God is our creator. And he writes, everyone has something in their number one adoration spot. The greatest being deserves that spot. It's immoral for anything else to occupy that pedestal. This is why Peter and Paul freaked out when people tried to pay them homage. And then he cites Acts 10, 25, and 26. About premise two, that Jesus accepted worship, he writes, Jesus definitively received worship, and unlike Peter and Paul, he never rebuked anyone for it. Even when Jesus was a baby, he received worship. As soon as the Magi laid eyes on the infant Christ, quote, they bowed down and worshipped him, Matthew 2.11. And then he cites the triumphal entry where the people cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, Matthew 21.9, John 12.13. Now, the baby example and the entering into Jerusalem example very clearly raise a certain problem, which is that most of the Bible terms that we would translate as worship can be used in the case of giving honor just to a human ruler. So when the wise men bow to the young Jesus, if you look in a lot of modern translations, it just said they did him homage because they thought he was destined to be the king of the Jews, not because they thought he was God. Again, when the people cry out when he's entering Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they don't think he's the Lord, they think he's the Lord's King, the Lord's Messiah. They think he's coming to rule. So I think we need to set aside cases of honor that's given just to a human ruler. Let's focus a little bit what we mean by our term worship. And that's the problem with this argument. As with the previous arguments, This argument turns on a key term, which can mean different things, and depending on how you interpret that term, you're going to end up with at least one false premise, according to the Bible itself. And again, if you try to make all the premises true by mixing and matching the mean of the term worship, then you're going to end up with an invalid argument. So why don't we set aside this meaning of worship in the sense of just honoring a human ruler? Call that civic worship. Let's set that aside. Let's say that by worship we mean public religious honor. Now, in this sense of the term, quote, worship is not by definition something which can only rightly be given to God. Maybe that's true, but it's not true by definition. It's not true just according to the meaning of the term. Okay, but then according to the New Testament, premise one will be false on this interpretation. Premise one will be anyone who accepts public religious honor other than Yahweh is a blasphemer. The clearest place to look at this, probably, is Revelation 4 and 5. So in Revelation 4, there's a vision of God on his throne, and the heavenly beings worship him because he's the creator. 
Now in chapter 5 of Revelation, the vision continues, and a lamb is brought into the throne room of God. And this lamb is judged worthy to take a scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And the heavenly beings sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. So this one who was earlier described as a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered is being praised here because of his service to God in ransoming people for God, making a new kind of nation able to serve God. They continue their song in verse 12, Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, to the one seated on the throne, that's God, and to the lamb, that's one who's been brought into God's throne room and who's being honored because of his service to God, to those two be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, granted, it's just a vision, but this is a kind of public religious honor. And there is somebody here other than Yahweh who is accepting public religious worship. That's the Lamb, who the reader knows is obviously supposed to be Jesus. Is Jesus a blasphemer? No. I mean, blasphemer is somebody who, like, curses God or disrespects God, something like that, right? And if you maybe barged into God's throne room and say, hey, worship me too, that maybe would be a case of blasphemy. But to be invited in and to be exalted by God, as it says in many places in the New Testament, to be exalted to God's right hand, of course, by God, there's nothing blasphemous about that. So then it's false that anyone who accepts worship other than Yahweh is a blasphemer, because this lamb is not a blasphemer, and yet he's other than Yahweh. Yahweh is the one on the throne, the one who was introduced in chapter 4. This lamb is someone else. This lamb has been dead before and now is alive, so you know he's not Yahweh just because of that. Another place you can see this is the famous passage in Philippians 2. So he talks about Jesus' humiliation, even to the point of death. He writes, even death on a cross. And by the way, as I understand it, this whole passage is just about Jesus during his earthly human life. It's not actually about incarnation. If you want to see that way to read this text, check out the blog post called A Reading of Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. I'll put the link for that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So after Paul describes Jesus' humiliating, self-sacrificing obedience, even through a horrible death on a cross, this is what he says. Verse 9, Therefore, because of all that service, God also highly exalted him, Okay, so he's been not just raised from the dead, but put in a high position. It says, God gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I take it this is describing religious worship, bending the knee, confessing Jesus to be Lord, honoring him as one who has been exalted to God's right hand. You know he's someone other than God because 
this honor that's given to him, it says at the end, is to the glory of God the Father. Honor given to him passes on to this one above him. For more on this, you can check out Podcast 227, Who Should Christians Worship? Okay, so in the sense of worship, where worship means public religious honor, it's true that Jesus accepted worship. That's premise two. But premise one is not true, that anyone who accepts worship other than Yahweh is a blasphemer, because Jesus is someone other than Yahweh, and yet this is not blasphemous. It's all Yahweh's doing. It's to his honor. It's to his glory. It doesn't dishonor him in some way. Okay, but that's not the only interpretation we could give to this term worship in this argument. So Mr. Minton might say this, Hey dude, it's my argument. I can use the word worship any way I want to. And I'm going to just stipulate that when I say worship, I mean worship as God. When I say worship, I'm talking about a kind of honor which is appropriate to God alone. Okay, so to clarify, why don't we just call that God worship, okay? It's a kind of honor which just by definition can only be appropriately given to Yahweh himself, can never rightly be given to anyone else. You know, because the form of the argument is the same as before, it's still going to be valid. But the question is, will we have a sound argument? Premise one, anyone who accepts God worship other than Yahweh is a blasphemer. Premise two, Jesus accepted God worship. Three, therefore, Jesus was either a blasphemer or he was Yahweh. Four, Jesus was not a blasphemer. Five, therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. Okay, so what about premise one? Anyone who accepts God worship other than Yahweh is a blasphemer. Um, Well, okay, we've defined God worship as appropriate to Yahweh alone, but it's not clear that that makes that premise just obviously true or true by definition. Suppose somebody through no fault of their own was insane and thought through no fault of their own that they were Yahweh. Then this insane person who accepts God worship because they think they're God they maybe couldn't be condemned as a blasphemer because they're not deliberately, culpably doing something wrong. Because, again, they're insane. That could be argued. But whether or not we agree with one on this interpretation of the term worship, now premise two is the problem. Jesus accepted not just any kind of worship, not just religious worship, but God worship. He doesn't accept God worship in Revelation 5, God worship is being worshipped for being the unique creator of the heavens and the earth, like you see in Revelation 4. Jesus is not worshipped on that basis in Revelation 5. As we just heard, he's worshipped because of his very valuable, faithful service to God. Jesus doesn't get God worship in Philippians 2. It says that the honor that's given to Jesus is to the glory of another. That's not God worship. God worship is not to the glory of someone who's above God. God worship is just to the glory of God, period. Now, what about when the disciples bow to him, the wise men bow to him? Well, they're in awe of the man. Some of the, quote, worship that is given to Jesus in the Gospels is clearly the worship appropriate to a human Messiah. You don't really see like regular cultic, you know, public service religious worship given to Jesus in the Gospels. And I think the New Testament reason for that is that Jesus was not yet exalted to God's right hand. Mr. Minton cites in this connection John 20, where the Apostle Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus and cries out, 
my Lord and my God. But it's not clear that this is Thomas giving God worship to Jesus. Just a few verses above in the same chapter, Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus here is saying that he has a God. His God is the same one who is the disciples' God, and that's the Father. That's Yahweh. Is Thomas calling Jesus his God? He could be if he's using God in a subordinate sense, like you see sometimes in the Bible. A famous example of which is in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, which is quoting Psalm 45. There are two different ones there, each of which are called God, and one of them is said to have a God. So in that case, God is being used in a lower sense for a being who is other than and under the one true God. But another way to take this, which fits well into the context of this book, is that even though Thomas says this to Jesus, literally speaks it to him, and that's what the Greek says, he's acknowledging the unique Lord and also the unique God who's in the Lord. He's recognizing the Father in Jesus who's been doing these works through him all along. He can finally recognize as Paul says in one place, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. There's a lot to be said in favor of this reading because of earlier statements in this gospel according to John. See the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where I'll put a link to a blog post on this topic by Kermit Zarley. Now, Jesus congratulates him on whatever it is that he's discovered here. He says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Come to believe what? Well, it says a few verses below that the whole purpose of the book is so that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Thomas, in recognizing God in Jesus, is thereby recognizing that Jesus really is God's Christ, his Messiah, his unique Son. Because now he finally sees that God has all along been working in, with, and through the man Jesus. However you look at this, it's just not a clear case of Jesus accepting a kind of worship which just by definition is appropriate to God alone. Again, we might understand Thomas here as honoring the one God and also the one Lord who is under him, according to the common New Testament confession, or we might see him as acknowledging Jesus as the one Lord and also as his, quote, God in a lower sense of that term, a sense which is consistent with being under the one true God. And of course, this book tells us very clearly who the one true God is in John 17, 1-3, among other places. In conclusion, Mr. Minton writes this, For an argument to be successful, it must meet three criteria. It must have valid logic, it must have true premises, and it must have evidence to demonstrate the truth of the premises. Right, so it must be valid and sound, and we need to have good reasons to agree with the premises. Absolutely. He writes, if an argument meets these three criteria, then one can be justified in believing the conclusion. Yes, believing the conclusion based on that very argument. In order to refute an argument, he continues, one must either show that the argument's conclusion doesn't follow, even if all the premises were true, so the logic is invalid, 
or that at least one of the premises is false. There's no other way to refute an argument. For cultists to deny the deity of Jesus, I ask this question, which premise or premises of each of these arguments do you reject, and why do you reject it? Well, Mr. Minton, I'm not a cultist and have never been one, but I have explained in some detail the problems with these three arguments. So the ball's in your court, sir. In each case, the problems have to do with different interpretations of the key term. So for the first argument, the term Savior. For the second argument, the term Creator. For the third argument, the term Worship. When you carefully separate those meanings and you see which are the meanings on which Scripture actually supports those premises, then as I've explained, you either get valid arguments that have a false premise and so are not helpful to us, or if you mix and match the different meanings of that term, you get an argument with all true premises, but then it's no longer valid. And so those premises, even though true, wouldn't offer any support whatsoever for the conclusion. Again, my whole discussion has been premised on understanding the conclusions of these arguments as statements of numerical identity. I don't think that's a good move. If you want to hear more about that, check out my blog post called The Apologetics Blind Spot on Numerical Identity, or again, Podcast 124, My Challenge to Jesus' God Apologists. If we wanted to say, no, by Jesus being God, we're just talking about Jesus being divine, those would be different arguments in a different discussion. Now, does it follow from our discussion today that Jesus is not Yahweh? Let's try out one more argument with the LogicBot 2000. Please state your argument. Premise 1. The arguments we've considered so far for the conclusion that Jesus is Yahweh are unsound arguments. Conclusion. Therefore, Jesus is not Yahweh. Your argument is invalid. Logic fail. <laughs> Logic fail? Wow. Sometimes when the logic bot gets overheated, he gets a little bit sassy. I think I'd better go ahead and shut him down. Thank you for using the logic bot 2000. Have a nice day. But still he's right. That little argument is clearly invalid. The conclusion doesn't follow from the one premise. Just because these arguments don't prove the conclusion doesn't mean the conclusion's false. And maybe there are other arguments that one could use to prove the conclusion. But I think we've done a pretty good job dispatching these arguments. So that's a kind of progress. Mr. Minton, other apologists, if you disagree, push back. And before we go, let me say one more thing. Thank you, Evan Minton, for loving God with your mind. Thank you for applying your God-given critical thinking skills to this very important issue. Carefully constructed arguments are a great way to explore an issue like this, and I urge you to continue. I hope my discussion today has given you some good material to use as you continue to think through what the Bible teaches about exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ relates to the one true God, Yahweh. Before we go, I wanted to share a few recent reviews with you that were left in the iTunes store. I'm delighted to say that they're all five-star reviews. Mike.wc writes, a must. Coming out from Mormonism, 
I realized that if I was ever going to understand the biblical truth about God and be able to defend it, I would need a much deeper education on New Testament and early Christian history. Attempting this seemed overwhelming, but Dale has put within my reach what would have taken much longer without his help. I've been listening now about three years consistently, and I'm always looking forward to the next episode. I've pretty much listened to every one, and many of them three, four, or five times, picking up on points that I had missed or re-remembering better what I'd already heard. I've listened to others, like the one on Photonus of Ankyra, probably 12 to 15 times. My goodness. Biblical texts, church history, and Christian philosophy relevant to Christian theology are the general areas of discussion. Dale is a good speaker, polite to his opponents, and I think he presents their views quite fairly and to a far greater degree than I have heard from them. In fact, his general Christian demeanor towards those not of his persuasion has on several occasions convicted me of a better way of dialogue with others. Thank you, Dale, for sharing. Mike, thank you very much for that very kind review. I'm so glad the podcast has been helpful to you in your theological and spiritual journey. Another review is from a user named MiddleKid2 from the U.S. They write, Dale is an expert on church history, and it is truly fascinating listening to things that you were never taught in church. Thank you, MiddleKid2. Yes, you're right. They don't teach enough of these things in church. To some extent, seminaries have taught their graduates a bad habit of hiding difficult issues from the laity, as if they can't handle them. Another five-star review is from a user named T.N. Birder. They write, I really enjoy listening to this podcast while I'm at work. I was raised oneness, but became Unitarian when I realized the Father, Yehovah, has a different name than the Son, Yehoshua, and the Son's name, Yehovah Saves, points away from himself. Dale Tuggy and guests bring some interesting points, and I really enjoy the humble, intelligent dialogue from both viewpoints. Thank you, T.N. Birder. Yes, I have a number of listeners and friends whose theology was that of oneness Pentecostalism until they couldn't any longer ignore the differences between Jesus and God in Scripture. There will, by the way, be more guests coming. I haven't had as many in recent episodes, but there are plans afoot to make more of these happen, and they won't be boring. Another five-star review is from a user named Ever Watching and Waiting in the U.S. They write, Dr. Tuggy's podcast presents a wide array of thought and knowledge that is both interesting and informative. You will be exposed to an amazing variety of topics of theological, philosophical, and historical interest. Don't bother if you already know everything and don't like to be questioned or disturbed. But if you don't mind having your pre-held certainties challenged, you will likely not only gain knowledge, but also enjoy the process. My particular pleasure comes from the exposure Dale has allowed me to historical writers and their thought that I would not otherwise have had opportunity to encounter without great investment of time, effort, and money. Thank you, Watching and Waiting. I really appreciate your encouraging words. Finally, another five-star review from a user called Caliph3001. They write, Dr. Tuggy presents wonderful ideas and thought-provoking stances that remind me of sitting in my philosophy classes. Just as reading some text, the information is plentiful, but I urge people to devour the knowledge slowly, and you will not receive mental indigestion. I miss my philosophy classes.
Thanks, Caleb3001. Well, I miss mine too. The mental stimulation of a well-done philosophy class is really something that has to be experienced. I hope you enjoyed the argument analysis and evaluation in this episode. So thanks to all of you. If you enjoy the Trinity's podcast, please do give an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. It helps people to find the podcast. And all the reviews I just read were from the United States, but I know that I have listeners in Germany, Sweden, the UK, Australia, Canada, the Slovak Republic, France, and other places. So won't you help out the people in your area who are looking for a podcast dealing with analytic theology, systematic theology, apologetics, or historical Christian theologies? This week's thinking music has been the track Private Hurricane, instrumental version by Josh Woodward. As always, on the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can listen to or download that entire track. And you can also check out his main website, which is at joshwoodward.com. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.